Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Brent Dawson, assistant professor of English at the University of Oregon. He joined the faculty in 2017. Dawson's research and teaching interests lie in Renaissance literature, including Spencer, Shakespeare, Cavendish, and Milton. He's interested in theories of nature and matter, both early modern and contemporary. Dawson is a 2019-2020 Oregon Humanities Center Ernst G. Mall Fellow in Literary Studies. He's working to complete his first monograph, Worldly Muck, The Matter of Universality in English Renaissance Literature. Thanks, Brent, for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. So let's start with um, the question of like, how did, you, how did you become interested in English Renaissance literature? Um, I, you know, I had really wonderful classes in Renaissance literature as an undergraduate at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I think I, it, it was like discovering a version of literature that seemed completely foreign to me and yet strangely familiar at mm. the same time. Um, so, you know, as like a kid, I was a, a super nerd. I loved science fiction and fantasy and all of those things. So, you know, being able to pick up Paradise Lost and see that, you know, in the middle of that, uh, Milton is speculating on whether or not there are aliens. I was like, oh, it's like 17th century <laughs> sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, at, at the same time that it's this culture that is like, you know, uh, deeply religious, has all sorts of ideas about science, about medicine that are completely different uh, from our own. There's also these just kind of like glimmers of recognition in there that I found just, I don't know, exciting to explore as an undergrad. And it's, it's still that way now. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the book project, Worldly yeah. Muck, The Matter of Universality in English Renaissance Literature. First, why don't you gloss the title for us? Uh, I mean, I, I yeah. should say, I love the title. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so, so, you know, that phrase is often disparaging when it's used in the period. Uh, worldly muck comes out of this Christian discourse of matter and the body as being something that is sort of tainted uh, and, and impure. So a lot of this project is interested in kind of shaking up our ideas about how this period thought about matter. So yes, there are those um, discourses about matter and flesh being sort of sinful, but there's also a tremendous interest in matter as something that is universal, that is capable of making up worlds and is something that, you know, we're all basically made of. So it's a, a sort of common ground. Um, this is a period that where the, like for example, the Roman poet Lucretius gets discovered, who's um, someone who was an Epicurean. He argued that uh, the entire universe can be explained through the sort of random conjunction of atoms crashing into one another. And when his work was rediscovered uh, early in the Renaissance, it uh, generated a huge amount of excitement and anxiety, right? So uh, for a Christian culture, the notion that um, the world can be produced just out of atoms was, uh, you know, was heresy. Um, but at the same time, as the period went through all of these new discoveries, uh, you know, uh, discovering the Americas, uh, at least from the European perspective, of um, discovering that Earth might not be the center of the universe, that sort of thing. This notion of matter being able to come together, make new things, and kind of sort of have this endless variety and yet connection between it 
became very powerful. So a lot of the literature is sort of drawing on that idea and keeps returning to it, even if it's like ostensibly religious. Hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little more specifically about the way that the literature does this stuff yeah. that you say. So you start with Spencer's Fairy Queen. Mm -hmm. So first of all, why begin with Spencer's allegorical epic and, and how does it figure in your argument? Um, right, so I think Spencer is probably the person among the sort of English Renaissance authors who is like most complicated and thorough in how he is imagining what a world is. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I, like you're saying, I actually have two chapters on Spencer, and it's kind of the duality of Spencer. You know, on the one hand, he is someone that is constantly talking about his world falling apart, um, and that was a sentiment that was common in this period. That they were going through such massive transformations that people had this sense of we don't even know what a world is anymore. Um, uh, so Spencer will repeat that quite frequently, the sense that the world is just kind of coming apart at the seams. There's nothing that holds it together anymore. Um, so the first chapter is looking at that sentiment in Spencer and tracing its connections to the sort of early moment of European imperialism, this sort of like gloominess about the globe is often like a desire for um, more English Protestant sort of control over the world that they, they're not having. They're very jealous of the Catholic control over the, the Americas at this point. Um, and then the second chapter switches to what I see as this alternative way of imagining the world in Spencer where he says, you know, I mean, it might be chaotic. Things might be falling apart, and yet there is this matter that everything has, and it might be always changing around and sort of chaotic in what it does, and yet it does offer this sort of common ground. So um, Spencer actually translates part of Lucretius's poem and mm. just inserts it into mm. his own. Mm. Um, and he also has these like long, long meditations about matter um, and how it can change forms and how everything that we see is made up of matter that used to be part of something else. Uh, so it's, it's clearly a, an idea that fascinates him and gives him this sense of universality even in a moment of tremendous transformation. And is there a component to this argument that speaks to the fact that this is an allegory? Is, there, is allegory related to this understanding of matter? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, like, there's, there's some tension there. Uh, so the, the allegory that I'm most interested in relationship to this is uh, Spencer has a whole canto of his poem, uh, so sort of like a, a chapter, like we would call it in a, in a novel, um, that's devoted to the human body as an allegory. So uh, the, the House of Alma is sort of this 16th century version of the magic school bus, right, where so the characters like trip pass through this castle that's like a blown up version of the human body and like each of its chambers is supposed to, to map onto something precise about human organs. So you know like the, the gate that you walk over the moat into is like the mouth and the porter is the tongue and that, that sort of thing. So it's, it's doing all of that. And then Spencer compares the, um, the flesh of the body, the, the outside, to what he calls slime um, is his word for it. And he says that you know the body, no matter how glorious it is right now, 
is going to fall apart just like the Tower of Babel. Um, so that comparison to me of body to structure and then to, to world, because the Tower of Babel is often this allegory about how we get all of the different nations in the world, tells you a lot about how Spencer is connecting these different things, mm -hmm. right? So for him, these questions of matter and world making are all sort of like brought together on the allegorical level um, to, to think through sort of all of these levels at once. Mm -hmm. Um, so the third chapter is on Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. So how does that text imagine the world? How does that text yeah. think about worldly muck? Um, uh, Antony and Cleopatra is such a fascinating play in terms of uh, just on a, a formal level. It's a play that is like jumping across the world, just like scene by scene. One, one moment you're in Egypt, the next you're in Rome, and then you're like sort of floating between the two. It's really easy to get disoriented mm -hmm. in that play. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that for the time period was sort of going against a lot of their ideas about how drama ought to operate. There was still this Aristotelian notion that there should be the unities of time and space in your play, and, and Shakespeare is just kind of exploding that in this drama, right? So it does create this sense of like, wow, I'm getting this like almost God's eye view on the world, right? Um, so. In that play, I, I'm kind of looking at different ways that that sense of, of like almost disorienting perspective on the world can play out. So I argue that you know there's the Romans for whom this ability to kind of like see a world um, and sort of picture yourself looking down on it, almost like a map or something like that, is this very imperial sentiment, right? I'm like this god that gets to peer down at all of my territory, and there's a, a tremendous feeling of power that comes with it. Uh, there's so much interest in map making in mm -hmm. this period that's sort of mm -hmm. part of that. Um, but there's also Cleopatra, who I think is, a, I mean, an amazing character and often interested in how feeling disoriented, feeling overwhelmed can create these uh, connections with people that you weren't expecting. Um, so she's often depicted as like sort of not really interested in like using her power very much. She goes out and drinks with commoners. She like sort of, you know, is talking to all these different people. Uh, so there, there's a sense in which world making for her is not this uh, a sense of like being above everyone in the way that the Roman characters are, are involved with. Hmm. Yeah. How interesting. So, yeah. um, so your next chapter is about an author I had never heard of. Mm. So he's he is a French theologian, Isaac Lup. Pay rare. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm not good at French, as you gathered. Yeah. So who was this guy, and how? Why is he important? I mean, he's he's a Frenchman, so all yeah. your other authors are English. Right. So say about, tell us about him. Okay. Um, so yes, he is the oddball of this book, but uh, I gave a chapter to him because I think he's an author that does not get read enough. He's one I'm trying to recover in a way. And he also helps me to connect these ideas of world making to early modern ideas of race and racism. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, along with the sort of colonialism in this period, this is when we first get something like what we would call a modern idea of race, fully separable groups of humanity who um, are alleged to have completely different origins from one another. Um, 
So I go back to La Perere to explore how these ideas about race are connected to notions of the origin of the world. Um, so there was a tremendous amount of debate in this period about whether or not all people could be said to descend from Adam and Eve, right? Um, so, you know, did all of these people in the Americas, did they somehow, were they like a lost tribe of Israel that had gotten over there? Were they not human at all? Like, and that's how we can explain their existence. There was a lot of trouble like reconciling the biblical worldview to this uh, global expansion that's happening in the period. Um, and so one solution that emerges out of that is like, well, yeah, uh, maybe not everyone descends from Adam and Eve. And that's also how we can explain why we Europeans are superior to everyone else, right? La Perere is a sort of alternative to that viewpoint, although he's someone that a lot of those like later racial ideologues are going to draw on. Hmm. He's a heretical theologian um, who had a, a huge amount of interest in Judaism and Jewish culture, as well as in the peoples of the Americas. And he articulated this idea that there were men before Adam, Okay, Adam and Eve were not the sole beginning of humanity, but that everyone was equal. God had created humanity out of matter, uh, and he could do so any time that he wanted to. He did it over and over again uh, throughout the universe, and we shouldn't like attach our ideas about who is human or not to this like descent from Adam and Eve, but instead to this like common creation out of the earth. It's completely heretical. Mm -hmm. He's actually a, uh, forced to convert to Catholicism at one point in his life and like renounce his texts. And yet it's an idea that just kept getting repeated in the period. Mm. So uh, I actually then trace like within England um, how his ideas do get reworked uh, into the beginnings of sort of racial science in the period. But there's also, in terms of literary texts, a huge interest in repeating the kind of um, more utopian dimensions of what La Perere is doing. And thinking through, yeah, you know, maybe people can come in all different forms, all, have all different origin stories, all different sort of historical narratives behind them. We can think through that variety and not necessarily imagine like everyone fitting into this hierarchy of, of who's superior and who's not. So I'm assuming therefore that the next chapter, which is about Margaret Cavendish yes. and the Blazing World, is one of those texts. Exactly. So why don't you exactly. tell us about that chapter? Sure. Um, so uh, Margaret Cavendish, if you don't know, is, um, boy, she's kind of does everything. She's uh, in conversation with uh, early modern science. She writes her own philosophical texts and a huge number of literary texts, including this kind of sci-fi uh, slash imperial utopia called The Blazing World. She's someone who was not uh, really like a canonical Renaissance author until about 20 years ago uh, when she got rediscovered and then uh, people just became absolutely fascinated with her. <laughs> uh, she's like a postmodern writer in the 17th century. So that text, The Blazing World, is actually, she published alongside one of her philosophical works. And she said these two works are like two different worlds that are joined at their poles. Hmm. So she's, uh, she's someone who's playing with different genres and different forms as part of her thinking and her thinking about worlds. Um, so uh, 
what gets me about Cavendish is, again, she's someone who's writing through a lot of contradictions. She's a royalist. She's very conservative in her political views. Um, and her texts reflect that. Uh, the Blazing World is about uh, this woman who uh, is kidnapped, then ends up escaping her kidnappers uh, by like traveling to this other world where all the different denizens of that planet immediately decide that she is just so beautiful and so wonderful that they want to make her the empress, right? It's like the most like power fantasy thing that you can, um, that you can imagine. Um, and the people of that world are all of these different animal men. Uh, so bears, uh, spiders, uh, birds, worms, etc who are like completely rational, they can talk, they are conducting scientific experiments, that sort of thing. Um, and yet they like just want her to be the empress. So, you know, it's like the most like extreme, unhinged, like imperial fantasy you can imagine. And yet, at the same time, Cavendish is someone who believes that um, all matter can think, can have some degree of knowledge and some degree of sensitivity. She argues in her philosophy that variety is the basic thing that's in common in the world. Um, variety had been this idea in, in natural philosophy going back sort of centuries to the Greeks, but she really makes it more central than anyone else in just saying like this is the basic way in which nature works. Mm -hmm. um, and her Utopia, her blazing world, reflects that, where um, the, the people of this other world are in many ways departing from the stereotypes that you see in a lot of colonial literature of the period. They're not savages. They're not imagined as being sort of um, without the rational powers or technological powers that Europeans have. Um, they are are doing, in fact, many of the things that Europeans are. They're conducting experiments, they're conducting philosophy, that sort of thing. So I, I, I see that even in the midst of this like imperial fantasy, she's exploring this variety as a common ground that's really sort of bringing the different characters of that world closer together. Hmm. So the final chapter is on Milton's Paradise Lost. Yeah. So quite different from what you've just described. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. help us to understand how that, how that text uh, works in your argument. Yeah, well, so going back to what I was saying about, um, about being an undergraduate. So even then, I, I loved the fact that there were aliens in Milton. Um, and, I, and I see Milton as someone who kind of likes these ideas about other worlds more than he's willing to admit. Mm. So uh, twice in Paradise Lost, you have characters who are flying through the cosmos and looking out and thinking about whether or not there are other people out there. Uh, so both Satan, who you, know, you can't trust too much, but then also the angel Raphael does it. Um, who's a bit more reliable as an authority. So both times, like Milton gets really excited about this idea and then says, but you know, it doesn't matter. Like, we just, we're just not going to go into that. Um, <laughs> so uh, to me, Milton is wanting to explore this idea that the world can be larger than what we can know. Um, and it's filled with the unknown, including the possibility of other people. Um, and I see Milton as exploring a lot of that in terms of his political ideas. So 
once Paradise Lost kind of ends the story of Adam and Eve, they get kicked out of the garden, they get this vision of what history is going to be like after them. And it's filled with uh, these stories of exiles, people who are like called by God to go into a world that is tremendously unknown and what they can't imagine yet. So I see this sense of like being filled with the unknown, being filled with a world that you can't quite know or explain, being important to Milton in terms of like cosmology, the sense of other worlds, but also of politics, mm -hmm. of trying to exist in a world that's full of strangers that you, that you don't fully understand. Yeah. Hmm. So one of the more um, provocative parts of your argument yeah. is that the worldly muck of the Renaissance has relevance for how we understand our world. Tell us about that. Sure. Uh, this idea of we don't even know what a world is anymore is something that I feel like describes today uh, just as much as it does the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, whether we're talking about um, environmental um, catastrophe, we're talking about uh, the internet, whether we're talking about global capitalism, we're living in a world that doesn't have the sense of like sort of firm boundaries in nation states that it used to. Um, that can be a sense of uh, chaos and also a sense of unity that comes out of that. So I see this project as kind of providing an analog in many ways to our contemporary situation where people were trying to think about what are new ways that we can imagine what makes a world if we can't rely on the old paradigms we had for that. So um, yeah, I, I see this book as really trying to grapple with a question that uh, has been persistent and comes up even more in our own modern moment. So can I ask you to generalize that a little bit more? Yeah. Because you say at a number of points in the project that we can learn about this past period by mm -hmm. the literature, but this argument you've just made suggests that reading literature from the past helps us to live in the world we currently inhabit. Absolutely. Um, why? <laughs> why is that true? Um, Literature is interested in exploring questions that it can't entirely answer. I think that's like such an important ethical stance for us to inhabit today. So, I mean, someone like Spencer is able to say, uh, I'm not sure what a world is at this point. I have like these multiple theories going on. I'm gonna try to hold it all together inside of a single text. So I, I think literature gives us a way to kind of struggle and grapple with problems that we don't have a firm answer to yet. It's part of what makes it so exciting in the classroom. Um, and so I think that's really important as a way of approaching these kinds of big issues. I also think there's nothing like literature for trying to imagine what a world is. I mean, we, we all have that experience as children of thinking that literature is so exciting because it gives us a different world to inhabit. So in terms of imagining what a world is, I think literature is such a powerful way to explore those possibilities. Mm, fascinating. So you mentioned the classroom. Yeah. So like everyone here at the University of Oregon, aside from being a researcher and a scholar, you are a professor, a teacher. Yeah. So tell us about some of the courses you teach, a course you're teaching now, uh, or oh. I know you're not teaching a <laughs> course now, a course that you've recently taught, the kinds of courses that you teach here. Sure, um, okay. So. Uh, one that comes to mind is I, I teach a Spencer course every year to undergraduates. And that is actually not common to do at the undergraduate uh, level. When I first got to Oregon and they asked me to teach a, a Spencer course, I went and asked my old graduate advisors, hey, do you have any recommendations about how to do this? And they were like, well, we never 
done that before. <laughs> so I was like, oh great, well I'm in for I'm in for a challenge. Um, but it's actually been like every year, like my favorite class to teach and the ones that I think students just like get so much out of. Hmm. Uh, it's an experience again of like being challenged and overcoming it. Spencer is someone who writes in really old, really allegorical language. Even in his time period, his version of English was sort of intentionally antiquated. Mm -hmm. um, but once you get over that hump, you realize what a wild world um, the Fairy Queen is. Uh, you know, we have people who turn into ideas. We have all of these like hybrid forms, uh, trees that can speak. Um, bodies that get up from the dead and start talking. It is a world where, you know, if you're used to 20th and 21st century fantasy and sci-fi, it like is actually kind of familiar in a way. Um, and it has characters that you wouldn't expect. Uh, the, one of the most important protagonists in the book is a, a female knight um, who's off supposedly on a quest for a husband, but she never really finds him and seems to have a lot of fun in the meantime. So it's it's. Uh, I think people just get excited for how much more is in older literature that they didn't realize was there. So I, I, I have a great time teaching that. Hmm. Yeah. So we just have a few minutes left. Uh, this may be my last question. I might have one after, but okay. you, you have a new project, it's a next project that you're yeah. working on called Drift, Materialist Theories of Mind in the Renaissance. Can you yeah. tell us about that one? Sure. Um, so the Renaissance is really interested in ideas about meditation, which again is something about the period you don't necessarily expect. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to uh, sort of older Catholic um, traditions of monasticism, there's all of these guides about meditation. Um, and I became interested in these ideas because they often give a picture of thinking and the sort of like mental world that is tremendously sensual and physical and material in nature. Um, the, the experience of sort of prayer and becoming close to God um, is supposed to be a, a really physical one. It's not just abstract. Um, there's a famous painting from the period by Georges de Latour called Meditation that has a woman sort of sitting at a table by candlelight uh, with a mirror in front of her, but there's also a skull there, this sort of memento mori, and she's got her fingers resting in the sockets of the skull. So at the same time as she's like thinking about mortality, about her relationship to God, she's also doing something with her hands. It's supposed to be a, a felt experience at the same time. So that really fascinated me, and I've been trying to explore across the period how uh, Renaissance ideas about thinking are supposed to often be much more material in nature than we might imagine. Um, I, I have a, an article coming out next year about the early modern devotional poet George Herbert. Mm -hmm. um, writes incredible spiritual poems, but uh, what has not been explored is how important sort of plants and gardening are to that, to his like relationship to God. Um, he often compares his own sort of mind, his heart as it grows towards and away from God to uh, sort of vegetal life. It was such a powerful metaphor for him. And he was also a practitioner, so he, he writes a huge amount about his relationship to his mother, how they were both gardeners uh, in this estate that he grew up from, and so he has this sort of practiced um, spiritual relationship to God that comes through working with plants and also like thinking about 
plants in terms of a spiritual metaphor. Huh. Yeah. Well, that project, like the first project, sounds fascinating to me. I, uh, I hope the first project gets completed <laughs> and published quickly so that we can learn about the second project in more detail. Brent, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure to be here. I've been speaking with Brent Dawson, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Oregon. He is a 2019-2020 Oregon Humanities Center Ernst G. Mall Fellow in Literary Studies, working on his first monograph, Worldly Muck, The Matter of Universality in English Renaissance Literature. Thanks so much for watching.